You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Uh, we watched uh, the Pope come to this area uh, from Ontario, Canada, and we uh, we're really quite amazed at the warm welcome that the Americans seem to generally give him and uh, have talked to a few people since and, and uh, you know, just to try to find out a little bit more about what the reasons were, what it was that they saw so uh, admirable in the leader of the Catholic Church. And uh, so uh, it, it's helped me to get a, a perspective of, at least a little better perspective anyway, of, of what people think here about uh, the Catholic Church and, and how they relate to it. And what we're hoping to do uh, both tonight and in the series of talks is, is to take you uh, through this topic uh, rather thoroughly, certainly not uh, looking up all the things we could because of the time restraints, but to certainly give you some reasons to be able to answer this question, why does the Bible say, come out of her, my people? Now, one of the things that I noticed, and uh, I couldn't help but think that many people would have noticed this, is that uh, in this mass of people that came out to, to welcome the Pope, and, uh, and all the things that he said about the families, there was something that could have made his message a lot more powerful. Like if I was looking at it from the point of view of, of Christadelphians, uh, not that we would take this particular point and, and amplify it as a Christadelphian, but if, uh, if, the, if the Pope was what he claims to be, then this is what I would expect. Because having read the Bible and having looked at Acts chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, which says, And believers were added the more unto the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. So he was dealing with multitudes of people likewise. But they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Can you imagine what the crowds would have been had they got word that people were going to be healed. After all, this man claims to be the successor of Peter. He claims to be like Peter, just like Peter, having the powers, having the authority of Peter. Well, if this is what the Bible says Peter did, that was notably missing and what we saw on TV. But if he had been able to do that, go into the hospitals in Washington and in New York and in Philadelphia and, uh, and go into there and heal these people and bring them out. They were healed, every one. There's a disconnect there. Why is it that the man who can, can bring in the crowds and the hundreds of thousands today can't perform these miracles that were done by what he claims to be uh, a successor of this man, Peter, uh, at the time when Christianity was started. 
So that's the question that we ask initially. Why can't this successor do it now? You see, there's a lot of questions that are unanswered that, that need answers. That's, that's a, a reasonable question for a man who claims to be the successor of the Apostle Peter as to why he couldn't do what the Apostle Peter did. Because he, if he could have, surely the crowds would have been enormous. And everywhere he went, they would, have, they would have clung to him to be able to heal of their diseases. Now, that's one of the reasons why we're put on these talks is because there is a disconnect. There's something that's claimed, and when you look at the claim, going back to the origin of Christianity, you, you can see that there's something not quite right. What happened? Why is it that he can't do that? So we need to do a bit of study. And this verse that we've been talking about comes out of this context. And it's always very important in studying the Bible to look at the context. What is the context of the statement, come out of her, my people? Well, you see, we couldn't put the whole thing in the advertisement, so we put a piece in. But if you knew where it came from in the Bible, you would say, well, it's because that you be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. It's a very powerful statement the Bible uses. And we don't just peg this on anybody. If I can't prove to you that this is the case, then come and see me. Because I think we can add evidence here that is irrefutable. And if people are really interested, then they will be paying attention to what the Bible has to say. I have some, some very, very close friends of mine back in Ontario who used to be Catholics, practicing Catholics, very Catholic in their outlook. And, uh, and very loyal to the Catholic system. But when they could not get answers to their questions and they started looking further, like, why is it I can't get a clear answer to my question? Then they started to doubt the organization. And in most cases, these people went back to their priests to try to explain to the priest, why can't I, I get an, a, a good answer to my questions? So there's, there's depth to this. And uh, we would hope to, in these talks, address those depths. This is the way we want to deal with it. All I want to do this evening is try to put some context to this word mystery. It's my personal experience talking to a priest and the way they dealt with mystery. I've been to the Vatican a number of times. I have uh, this book. I've read this book the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. I've studied it to try to make sure that I got it right, that I'm not misquoting people. And so when we talk about mystery, I want to quote to you how mystery is understood and used by the Roman Catholic Church and why it's effective and what it is trying to achieve. But truth is better than mystery. And that's what we'd like to deal with tonight. Tomorrow, Lord willing, we'd like to first of all deal with this subject, iron, and the Roman Catholic Church. And I think when you look at the Bible and you look at this material, iron, you might never suspect that iron would be related to the identification of the Roman Catholic Church, but I'd like to take you through the passages which deal with it, and, and you decide. And when you look at the evidence for this, you will see that the Bible is often referring to the Roman Catholic Church 
through the metal iron and the Iron Age, when it became prominent in history. I want you to have a look at this subject, the impossibility of patron saints. This is a very big issue with the Roman Catholics. I mean, it was a big issue here. And this controversial man, Sarah, over in uh, this former missionary of the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, I've been reading the correspondence that's been coming on the internet relating to, you know, the, the, the Pope actually taking the time to, to make this person a saint. A lot of people weren't very happy about that. I'd like to talk a little bit about this because uh, I've never been able to find anything like this in the Bible. And if you study the Bible and you can't find anything about patron saints like the Catholic Church is talking, then you ask yourself, well, why, why are they doing this? Like, where does this come from? How is it that the man who claims to be the vicar of Jesus Christ, who represents Christianity, he believes on earth, is dealing with something that's not found in the Bible? Well, I'd like to show you what I think is really at stake there. That's a a very important talk because if you can see this, I think you will be a long way to understanding Revelation chapter 18. I'd like to talk about this directly, God's family versus the human family. Like we hear a lot of things that relate to family life today. Though one of the things that really shocked me was to hear how Ireland now has sort of reinterpreted the idea of marriage. Marriage not necessarily between a man and a woman, it may be a, a relationship between two men, they say, or two women, or maybe even three. And I thought, that's really redefining the whole idea of the family. Now, you see this in the catechism of the Catholic Church. You can see what they believe. You can see what people of the press said the Catholic Church believed, and you can see the differences, things that were left out. Because the Catholic Church traditionally has taken quite a strong stand on that issue. And some of the, the priests, some of the bishops in America were not very happy with the Catholic uh, leader and, and not being a little bit stronger in just dealing with what the church says they believe. Because everybody's drifting along towards a new definition of what the family is. And most people love that change that's coming. But I think when you see what God's definition of the family versus the human family, you see a big difference. We've got to be careful we don't miss that difference. This last talk is a talk about Bible prophecy. Like You don't find anything like this. There's nothing comparable in the world to Bible prophecy. If people wanted a miracle, you can see it in the Bible. Because you first of all ask yourself, how could there be anything like this? This book, in many of the prophecies it talks about, are 2,500 years old. What could anybody possibly know about our day and generation 2,500 years ago? How could they possibly know the, the nations which would be on the world stage 2,500 years before they were there? And yet we find them there. And not only that, we find Rome there. As it's used in the press, or when you talk about Rome today, well, you're not really talking about the Italian government. You're talking about the Vatican. And many of the, the press releases you see that came from Rome had nothing to do with Italian government. It, what was the Vatican saying about this? 
What was the, the leader of the Roman Catholic Church saying about this? Well, that's the way the Bible takes it up. There's a, a long-standing feud, so to speak, that you can see in the Bible between Jerusalem and Rome. And we'd like to, uh, to bring that to your attention in our last talk. So that's how we intend to deal with the subject that we find in uh, Revelation chapter 18. And we certainly wish you'd, you'd be able to come out and, and to hear all of that. Now, Christians don't have any choice in this. If you think you have choice in this, well then look at the, the passage. This is the Lord Jesus Christ saying this. In John 4, verses 23 to 24, The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This God, the God of the Bible, I don't mean your concept of God, because you see, if you talk that generally in society today, you can mean anything from people who have some vague idea of a God, because, well, he's, he's always been around, he knows everything, uh, he's going to exist in the future. Those characteristics could apply to gods anywhere, gods almost any time in history, but not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is very distinct. And it would seem to be quite reasonable that if you really want to associate yourself with the promises of the Bible, in the such that you would hope to be in line to receive the promises, then you must see that that, that God is also saying that we have to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now that's not easy in a, in a world where everyone's so busy. When people have taken up careers that takes just about every drop of, of energy they have to just get through a day, what are they going to do this study to worship God in truth? It's a real problem for our society. People are too busy. So busy this is relegated to secondary, tertiary interest. When it comes to educating our children well, doesn't the school system do it good enough? And the school system says, well, you know, just, just look out there what's there and, and take what you like. Is that the kind of direction that this verse gives us when it says that this God says you must worship him in spirit and in truth? So the point I'm trying to make here is if you read the Bible, you're serious about it, you don't have any choice in this matter. We worship God in truth. And what that means simply is make sure that you've done your homework. Check it out. See why he says something. See if he says something. And if someone says he says he, he doesn't really say that, well then check that out. Like it, it means that we're going to be engaging one another and trying to be sure of what God does say. Well, how could you be sure except that in the same book it tells us this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God didn't see any need for things beyond the word. You, you just can't make it out of that, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's given such that the man of God may be perfect or complete. It's hard to argue 
based on that description, that there's something left out, that we need to go beyond that. We need to add to it. So I would suggest to you that, you know, these are basic Bible passages guiding our thoughts through this. That God wants us to worship him in truth, and he gives us a book that allows us to do that. That's the significance of those two verses. Well, when you go to the catechism, you're going to find quite a different story. And uh, many times in these talks, I'll have to consider both cases. Like there's the, the Catholic catechism and there's the Bible. Now, I, d I don't know whether you have this, but uh, it's very easy to obtain. You go down to a Catholic church, you'll probably, they might sell it to you, they might give it to you. I don't know, but it's very easy to get. And you can find exactly what the Catholic Church believes. Uh, but the Bible is going to be the one that's going to be the, the guide to what is right or wrong. And I want to point that out through a number of, of uh, references to it. And all of my references are, there, there's a context to it. Like I don't want anyone to think that uh, I'm just making these up. They're, I give them to you. You can check them out. So it says that in order that the full and living gospel might always be preserved in the church, the apostles left bishops as their successors. They gave them their own position of teaching authority. Indeed, the apostolic preaching, which is expressed in a special way in the inspired books, was to be preserved in a continuous line of succession until the end of time. This living transmission accomplished in the Holy Spirit is called tradition, since it is distinct from sacred scripture, though closely connected to it. Well, most of us wouldn't just believe everything we read. But you see, it depends on how much time you got to really study it out. It depends how convinced you are that you need to worship God in truth, rather than just, you know, following something as you may have time to do it. But if you look at this teaching, it's saying that the apostles left bishops in a continuous line of succession to the end of time. So you see it's in quotes. You ask yourself, well, why is it? Like, where did they get this idea from? And they'll tell you, well, it, it came from some tradition. It came from some council of the church. It came from some former pope who said, this is what it is. And you start to see that the Catholics put something else alongside the Bible when it comes to determining what the church believes. And that's what I want to draw your attention to. Because you see, the Bible says this very, very different. You look at this. In Jude verses uh, 3 and 4, there's only one chapter in that book. Behold, when I, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should, contend, you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there were certain men crept in unawares who were before of, of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So way back in the time of the apostles, when the Bible, the New Testament that is, was being written, there was a problem where they recognized that there were people that were coming into the church, but they weren't talking the same language. And what this man says is that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. 
Now, if you were to follow that up through other translations and look a little bit into what, what this really means, it could be paraphrased this way, that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all time delivered unto the saints. Because God never envisaged when he gave it to the apostles to write that there would be any need to modify it, that there would be any need to add to it, and certainly that there would be no need to take away from it. So God did something which is just outside of human behavior. He was able to tell people what needed to be believed once, and it's good for 2,500 years. Now, if that's true, there's no need for the tradition which the Catholics are talking about. But they go on. In these two, it says, holy tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God to the successors of the apostles. As a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments and devotion and reverence. You wouldn't expect to hear that when the Pope comes. That would be left up to maybe the priests or the bishops to explain to people who have asked questions. That would be not something that would be revealed openly to the public. But for Christadelphians, for people who open their Bible and say, that's, what I get, that's where I get taught what I believe about the Word of God, that is really different. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. That these councils, which the, the Roman Catholic Church held over the years, the statements which writers and the people devoted to the Roman Catholic Church submitted, what popes thought and what they wrote down, must be considered equally with the scriptures. It's right at the base. You can't get any lower than the authority that you use to establish your faith. There's a big difference between where the Bible leads you and where the Roman Catholic Church leads you. We would have a very difficult time with what's written in red. The Catholics accept that. And so when you go through the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, you will find many things which are quite startling, but there's never any verse behind it. They don't see any need for a verse. If some pope said it, or some leader of the church said it, or some council said it, that's, that's as good as the Bible. Now, I want you to remember that. We'll come back to this, because you see, when you start to see other things, which maybe are, are things which are more objectionable, to us because that makes a big difference in what we teach our children, makes a big difference in what we believe about our parents and about other people. We might object there, but it comes right back to this. Do you get what you believe from the Bible or do you get it with uh, equal sentiments of devotion or reverence from tradition? Well, the Bible goes out of the way to say this. You almost think that God knew this was going to happen. So in Revelation, this is the very last chapter of the Bible. 
In verse 18, it says, I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Plagues. Now, wasn't that exactly what we read in Revelation 18? That you receive not of her plagues? So you see that the God who, who motivated people to write this, in particular his son, Jesus Christ, he was the one that gave this revelation to John who wrote it. If any man shall add unto these things, God will add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of this the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things that are written in this book. So everybody who has a real feeling for the Bible would be very hesitant to add something or to take away something, like to ignore something and to have a blind, blind eye to it so that, you know, they have a part of their life which is dark. They don't want anybody seeing in that part of their life. Well, how do they get around it? Well, because in their mind, they have discounted, taken away what the Word of God has said. Maybe because of tradition. Somebody else said something and gave them an idea that maybe what God said wasn't really what he meant. So these are foundation scriptures, ladies and gentlemen. There's, there's nothing I could add that I think is, is, is more foundational than how you interpret your beliefs. How do you, how do you figure out what is right? What are you going to teach your children? What are you going to believe? What are you going to uh, base your life on than these kinds of scriptures? But when it comes to tradition, Jesus didn't have very good things to say about tradition. In Matthew 15, verses 7 and 9, is a little example. He said to the people, the Jews of his day, who were very traditional, you hypocrites, play actors, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people draw nigh unto me with their mouth, honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now, that should be something we really want to be aware of. Wouldn't it be awful to go through life just not giving enough attention to the Bible and what you believe, but yet, you know, going to a particular place, worshiping in a particular way, only to find out it was all in vain. It was vanity. Certainly, if we instruct our children in a vain way, we probably get all the feelings from that alone. But the church, the Roman Catholic Church, teaches this in a very interesting way. This again from the, from the catechism. Is it mystagogy? Liturgical catechists uh, uh, yes, aims to initiate people into the mystery of Christ. It's mystagogy by proceeding from the visible to invisible, from the sign of the things signified from the sacraments to the mysteries, such catechists is, to, is to presented by local and regional catechisms. The catech this catechism, which aims to serve the whole church in all the diversity or her rites and cultures, will present what is fundamental and common to the whole church in the liturgy as mystery and as celebration, section one, and then the seven sacraments and the sacramentals, section two. You really need to know what the Roman Catholic Church means 
by mystery. You ever read a mystery? You know, something you couldn't figure out. If you did, it was left right to the very end. So mystery is, is something w which people are enticed by. Like there's a mystery involved. I like to try to figure it out. So you, you might pick a book out of the library because it's a mystery book. And you just like trying to put things together and see if you can figure it out before you, you actually find out in the book. So the church takes a hold of this idea of mystery and really puts it into the teaching of the church. Well, what do we do with that? Except with Bible statements like this, we analyze it. We look at what people say and we say, as the prophets told us to, and Isaiah being an example, in chapter 8, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. So it's, it's been our custom that whenever we encounter something that's different from what we believe, whether it be you know, the beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses, whether it be the, the belief of the, of the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, or any one of, of the religions claiming to be Christian, we just say, well, do these speak according to the law and the testimony? Can you find support for what they believe? Well, if the church claims that we consider that uh, the ideas of councils and the ideas of, of, of the leaders of the church have equal authority, then you can certainly understand it. No, you won't find it. You won't find it according to the word. Well, that's very helpful because that's a bit of a lever to investigate things, to you know, lift things up and pry them out and see what's behind them. If they don't speak according to the word of God, then it's because there's no light, there's no education in them. And then in the New Testament, it commends this kind of behavior. Then Acts 17, verses 11 and 12, it said that the people in this city uh, were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed also of the honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. So the Bible commends Old Testament, look at the law and the prophets, just compare it, see if you can find support there. If you can't, let it go. And the New Testament says you should actually look again at the scriptures. Well, what scriptures do you think they were looking at? The only scriptures these people had in the New Testament was the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. Oh, they might have had access to parts of Paul's writings or something like that. But largely, when you see this in the New Testament, it's saying the same thing as the Old Testament. Search the scriptures and see whether these things add up. And when they did, they found out that it wasn't in accordance with it. It says many of them believed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it gets a little more sophisticated because th this is typical human behavior, that if you really wanted to do something, well, you, you know it, it wasn't going to be savory for people that knew you, people that you loved, maybe your family, maybe people at work. You're going to do something that would make, put you in a bad light. Hide it. Look in it. Do it in darkness. And this is pointed out, and it's pointed out in John, so obviously it would be the Lord speaking here in John 3, 19 to 21. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world 
and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone that doeth evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now that's a characteristic of people. If you find people that really believe they have the truth, they'd never be afraid to discuss anything they believe. Because they're the people that are in the light. They want to have light on what they believe so they can clearly see the distinguishing features of, of darkness and light, of things that are right and things that are wrong. So a person who loves the truth comes to the light, comes out, let's get in the light. Let's check out this out and see together what this, what this is really saying. But people who maybe have a suspicion that really it's a, it, it won't stand the brightness of light. So don't get the light too bright. You might find something's wrong with this. And people actually hang on to things for those reasons. As he says, men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Ladies and gentlemen, we divide on that. Some of us do and some of us don't. And some of us who don't are struggling to, to get rid of that trait because we don't like it ourselves. Our conscience condemns us doing things in the dark which we know won't stand the test of light. So Jesus' words were very challenging, and they still are. And Paul was the one who, who stated it so bluntly and so strongly that he actually said it this way. In Galatians 1, verse 6 and 8, I marvel that you are so removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Do you think Paul had latitude for what he believed and what he taught? Not with those words. And for those of you who know those words, you know what the next verse says. He just repeated it again. So the people would not be under any mistaken idea as to what he believed. There was one gospel, as he said, it was given to him, revealed to him by Jesus. And he said, any other gospel, if you teach anything other than that, let him be accursed. So I'm not, and Christadelphians don't try to make this up. Not trying to manufactured differences between other groups. We're just trying to relate what the Bible says so that when the Bible is read in Revelation 18 it says, come out of her, my people, if that is, resonates with the reader, you say, yeah, maybe I better get out of it. You will see it because you have paid attention to these kinds of verses very strongly stated in the scriptures. Now, I'd like to do a little bit of work on this word mystery. And before I do that, I want to tell you a little bit about this book. I brought this along with me because I got this from a priest. Some time ago, uh, there was a group of Christadelphia young people came to uh, our church in, uh, in Ontario. And it was our responsibility to, uh, to do something with them for a week. So what we thought we would do is we would take the young people, and, and we would expose them to the teachings of all the other Christian religions that, that were in the area. We wrote a letter to every Christian church 
So in Canada, there'd be United Church, there'd be Anglican Church, there'd be Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, many different evangelicals, uh, the, the Baptist Church, Catholic Church, and uh, in many cases, some of them ha had a, a great number of buildings in the area. We wrote letters to everybody. And what we asked them was this. We'd like you to explain to our children the uniqueness of your church. Like, why do you stand out separately from other Christian denominations? And what do you believe? What do you believe about the Trinity? Give us an idea of how you understand the Trinity. Give us an idea of the, how you feel about the ecumenical movement. Do you really want to come back to Rome? Do you really feel that that's a good movement? Do you support it? And then give us, if you would, please, 20 minutes for, for the group of young people we have to ask questions just on what you said. No controversy. Very, very interesting to see what these other churches did. Can you imagine a church that had about 30 congregations in the area and they could not find one man who would stand up and, and say what his church believed to these young people. Can you imagine that Jehovah's Witnesses refused to come? Can you imagine the Seventh-day Adventists came, did the best presentation of anybody I'd seen very uh, wonderful uh, person, the way he came in, very politely did what he was asked to do and then left. And that's, that, uh, that was very interesting. And the, and the young people were very impressed. So we asked them, you could either come to our place or, or we will go to your organization or your, your church, wherever. The Catholics wanted us to come to their building. So we did. And when we got down there, the, uh, there was a number of interesting things that happened, but one of the things which was most interesting is the priest said, I want you to come and sit in the front row. So we had about a dozen young people. They all sat in the front row, and he, he said to them, he said, uh, he says, I, I know you're not Catholics, and he says, I, I, uh, I doubt whether any of your parents were Catholics. He said, you go back another generation. The likely is that some of your grandparents were Catholics. Well, you go back far enough. You were all Catholics. Welcome home! Now that's cheeky. But that's what he said. And then he passed out this book for everybody to read. Now I want to tell you a little bit about this book on the screen. Because that was, uh, that was, the, 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 we need to talk about these when we got home. We did. We debriefed with the young people. We explained, uh, you know, as best we could about why the person did that and, and what they were trying to achieve. But when you look at this idea of mystery, which this book abounds in, this is what the Bible says. So in Mark chapter 4, verses 10 to 12, it says, When he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked him of the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. <clears throat> now, I don't want to take a lot of time on this because you could spend a lot of time on the saying of Jesus. But when you see what he said in bold there, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, that's a different use of the word mystery. 
Because if you look at mystery in some senses, you might never expect to find it out, never expect to solve it, never expect to fathom it. But not with Jesus, because he said unto his disciples, the twelve, asked him, he said unto them, unto you it is given to know the mystery. No longer a mystery. They know it. But unto others, things were done in the parables that they might not know. So there's a real divide as to whether you understand what the Bible means by mystery or whether you don't. Well, look at this, because this is the way we, we use the Bible. And I'm not su suggesting that this is all the, the uh, meanings that you can get, because sometimes in the, the English language is, is turned really ridiculous corners on how words have changed their meaning, such that it is almost 180 degrees from where it started. You say, how much longer is English going to be useful when, you, when it does that? But look at these things. Now, you probably used that word in one of these ways. Mystery. Anything that is kept secret or remains unexplained or unknown. So in that case, you would never expect to know it because that's what the word mystery is really basically meaning. But a person, I think that should say, or thing, having qualities that arouse curiosity or speculation. The mask guess was a mystery to everyone. The quality of being obscure or puzzling, an air of mystery about it. Any truth unknowable except by divine revelation. Getting a little closer. But in the, in the Christian religion, Catholic, a sacramental rite, the Eucharist, an incident or scene in the life or passion of Christ or in the life of the Virgin Mary. It's got a, it's got a different meaning than what we would normally associate with it, but it's not so different it hasn't got any connection with it. It's a mystery how they use the word mystery. <laughs> but effectively, and that's what I want to show you, if you looked at the word in the Greek, the word means something that's hidden, a secret, mystery, generally mysteries, religious secrets confided only to the initiated and not to ordinary mortals, a hidden or secret thing not obvious to the understanding, a hidden purpose or counsel. And, and as you go down through this, uh, you see at the last one here, in rabbinic writings, it denotes the mystic or hidden sense. But the word mystery is something that is related to uh, the beginning of, of something. You, you can't quite understand it until you're initiated to the understanding. It's a very different way to use mystery. It means that it's only the people who, who have the, the understanding that can, can resolve the mystery. It's not to say that the Bible doesn't use it, because the Bible does use the word, but we've really got to come to grips with how it uses the word. And I'm suggesting here that it's confided only to the initiated. It's not obvious to the understanding, but it's not something that you couldn't know or couldn't understand. When the Catholic uses, the Catholics use this, just look at the percentage of time. So the word mystery in this little red book is used 38 times in 110 pages. The word mystery is used 22 times in 1448 pages, never found in the Old Testament. So in the Bible use of the word is 1% of all its texts. 
And in the, this little book, it's used 25% of all its pages. I just suggest to you that that just means maybe there's a bit of an overuse of this word mystery. And why would it be? Well, the Bible, when it speaks about the mystery, is, uh, and a mystery that was a mystery to the, uh, to the people who were called by God, it's, it's really spoken of properly, I think, in these two verses here in Romans chapter 16. Verse 25. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. So, yeah, it was a mystery for a while. It was kept secret, but it was made manifest, and it was made manifest to all nations. Well, if people used that definition, followed the Bible pattern, we would not likely have this. But this is the way it's used in that little red book. The mystery of the Trinity is the central doctrine of the Catholic faith. Upon it are based all other teachings of the church. The mystery of the Trinity. Well, it is rather mysterious. No doubt about that. So it's rightly named that the mystery of the Trinity. But that's, if people just think, well, it's, it's just a mystery, you can, you can see how people can just accept it. Don't ever expect to understand it because it's a mystery. In the Mass, both the past and the future become really present in mystery. I can't explain that any better to you. That's, that's mysterious to me. The next one, the life of faith is very personal and delicate and ultimately mysterious. Faith is a gift of God and God only knows who has it. Again, in the next one, page 27, in our own time, Pope Paul VI has expressed the same truth with these words. The church is a mystery. It is really imbued with the hidden presence of God. And then on page 39, through symbolic immersion in the waters of baptism, you are grafted in the past, paschal mystery of Christ. In a mysterious way, you die with him and are buried with him and rise with him. Here on the earth, the kingdom is mysteriously present. When the Lord comes, it will enter into its perfection. That kingdom is already present in mystery. You know, it explained to me something I could not really fathom before when I read this book. There's a young lady that came to me and she said, you know, I'm really, really happy that you people try to answer my questions because every time I've gone to the priest, he just says it's a mystery. Well, I can understand why he would say that. You see, because everything is mysterious. And just, just think if you could just answer all the questions and get the audience to believe, oh, it's just a mystery. Don't expect me to explain it. And if you're satisfied with that, you're hooked, I would say. You don't want to be hooked on that. You want an explanation for it, because that's the way the Bible did it. But, but this is the way it's sold to people who are happy with that. So, mystery is a title earned. In this Revelation 17, 18 set of passages, which are linked together, it says that whoever this is, that upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery. 
Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Do you think that mystery applies to Microsoft? Do you think it applies to any of the other big, big companies and organizations of the world? Like, who is the Bible speaking of? There has to be someone, something it's speaking of. And one of the characteristics is the word mystery. Well, I tell you, it looks like they wanted to be called by this. That's a huge organization. What other man could come to the world uh, stage of United Nations and, and people from all other faiths and countries of the world listen to this man speak? People love it because that's the age in which we live, where in some cases it just doesn't matter. We don't go beyond that idea of mystery. Well, the Apostle Peter, and you would think that Roman Catholics would maybe pay up more attention to the Apostle Peter than others. It says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily will bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction, and many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Well, the Pope has been doing a lot of apologizing. The Roman Catholics in Canada for well over a decade have been doing a lot of apologizing. It's really uncanny to, to see how the Bible could see that there was going to be problems, major problems, with the false teachers that were coming in and such that the way of truth would be evil spoken of. Here's a man who claims to represent the Christian church on earth, and he has to start off by apologizing for things that that church has done. Just interesting to see how these characteristics pop up. And also, when it comes to dealing with scriptures, it, it, this one that you know, the Apostle Peter gives us in 2 Peter chapter 3 is always very interesting because he re, it says, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved Paul, also according to the wisdom God hath given unto, ha, given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction." So you can, you can see that for us to figure this out and to, 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 to look at this word mystery and to, to look into the ground of authority as to whether really what people have said and church meetings are of equal authority to the Bible, this flavors it because he's telling us that people are going to really mess it up, resting the scriptures, distorting, twisting them, and unto their own destruction. But ladies and gentlemen, that's not the way it speaks of the truth. You talk about saints and sanctification. The Lord Jesus Christ in his prayer recorded in John 17 stated, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And we know what he was referring to when he talked about his word. 
As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. The Bible uses that expression, the truth, a number of times as if we would know that there was a body of language or a body of information, the body of, of uh, understanding that it was referring to when it talks about the truth and people being sanctified, set apart through that truth. And what we are to do is illustrated by the Apostle John in the first letter, chapter 4, Verses 1 and 2, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world, hereby know you that the spirit, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. So he even gives us a test which we can apply. But to try the spirits and, and to put ourselves into that investigative mode. We're not just going to believe everything. We're going to, we're going to look into it. We're going to see if it adds up, if it compares with what has been revealed. Now that's the topics for our later discussion. What I would like to do again, and these dates are a little, or these times are a little bit different because I think now it's 2.30 tomorrow afternoon that our, for our uh, talk that starts off, Iron and the Roman Catholic Church. And I'd like to, in this next talk, in fact, these three tomorrow, is try to make sure that you can see that the Bible does speak about the Catholic Church in a, in a very uh, impressive way. Like, you look at all the characteristics that the Bible says that this group must have, and, and try to find anything else in the world that's even close to being comparable to what this organization has. You've got to be convinced of this to come out of her, my people. That's what the Bible wants us to do. So I'll leave this with you until tomorrow. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.